Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Ashley Jacobs, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Ashley. Today, we have a very special episode and a vitally important conversation. Ashley and I had the opportunity to visit with two Holocaust survivors, Izzy and Anna Arbeiter. In our two-plus-hour conversation, we heard Izzy's story of his childhood in Poland, survival and loss in concentration camps, and how he found his wife Anna after the defeat of Nazi Germany and the liberation. He'll also share with us how he built a new life as a young man in the wake of the unspeakable suffering he and millions of other Jews endured. After sharing his story, Izzy answers some of our questions with occasional commentary from Anna and their daughter, Fran. Sitting with Izzy and Anna on their sun porch and hearing their testimony was, without a doubt, the most meaningful experience of my entire life, and it's something that I'll cherish forever. It's been 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, begins on Monday, April 20th at sundown. The Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Boston will be holding a virtual remembrance and reflection on Sunday, April 19th at 2 p.m. Find more information in the show notes. My name is uh, Izzy, Israel, Izzy Arbeiter. I was born in Poland in a city called Plotsk, P-L-O-C-K. Um, I was a, my mother uh, said that she has a, bas- a basketball oh. team, five boys. I was the middle one. Of course, the best-looking one. <laughs> and we were a happy family, five boys, you know. Uh, there there were arguments or fights between us, the boys. But that was at home. But if a stranger would start with one of the boys, he had to deal with five. <laughs> and you see the little one there, seven years old when he got murdered in Treblinka, he couldn't reach up to the uh, to the fellow that we were fighting with, so he kicked him in the legs. It was, was funny. But um, everything went, was all right. You know, Poland wasn't the richest country in the world. My father was a tailor, custom tailor. He might make, make custom clothes. And... Uh, and... Poland, there was a lot of Jewish people, there was a lot of Jewish communities, but um, we were happy. Um, we were living uh, in a two-room apartment that was middle class, so one of the rooms was uh, the kitchen, my father's uh, tailor shop, in the dining room. That was one of the rooms. The second room was the bedroom for seven people, and uh, and the uh, office for my father to deal with the customers. So you can imagine, seven people sleeping in one in one room. We were sleeping four in one in a bed, 
two to, to the head and two from the other side. But this was life in Poland before the war. We didn't know that they're better. We heard about America, and the saying about America was there is money laying in the street. You just got to know how to pick it up. So I was very anxious to get there, and I was practicing how to pick up money from the, from the, from the street. <laughs> and that was going on until September 1st, 1939, when the uh, Germans attacked Poland. The city of Plotsk was located, or still is located, 90 kilometers from the German border, uh, which is 90 kilometers. It took the German army three days uh, to enter Poland, uh, to enter the city of Plotsk and other parts of Poland. Uh, Poland uh, capitulated after about uh, four weeks. Uh, so that was September 1939. In October, November 1939, uh, a ghetto was established and the and all the Jewish people of the city, which was 10,000 strong, were ordered to live in a certain section of the city. It was called the Jewish ghetto. We were ordered to wear the yellow star of Star of David. I'm sure you have probably seen that before. Uh, the ghetto, we could not leave the ghetto. You um, were allowed to leave only if you went to work. The only place of work was for the Germans. Um, food was rationed. Only those that went to work for the Germans got the ration card, which was getting smaller and smaller every time. There were certain things that were not on the ration card at all, uh, like butter, sugar, meat. Um, bread was free. I mean, we could buy bread, we could buy potatoes, things of that nature. Um, but so uh, life wasn't as happy as it was before in Poland. I'm going back a little. Uh, like I said, we were not rich. Poland wasn't a rich country. But we were happy. The Jewish people were living all in one area. As you can see there in the corner over there, in one over here, that we had a... Sport club called the actually two or three of them. One was the Maccabees, one was the Hakoa. This is our sport cl- sport club, the uh, Hakoa Sport Club. And so, uh, it was a happy a happy life. That, we didn't know any better. There were better places to live, but we didn't know, and so we were satisfied with that. Uh, like I said, in November of 1939, the ghetto was established. Only those that worked for the Germans were allowed to leave the ghetto. Leaving the ghetto was, uh, without a permit uh, was very strongly punished and sometimes even did, with the death penalty. It didn't take very much for a Jew to do something according to the Germans wrong for them to shoot that person or hang him. 
uh, the people that were accused of doing something wrong to a German. As a matter of fact, it was in 1939 still, when we were living in the ghetto. All of a sudden came out a, uh, a lie that a German soldier, a drunk German soldier, got lost in the Jewish ghetto and he got beaten up there by the Jews, which was not true. And therefore, they uh, ordered 25 Jews at, at, um, from the ghetto to pick out, and they were uh, committed to that. They were hung in the ghetto for the others to see. And like they were saying, um, this is what's going to happen if you do harm to the Germans. At the beginning, the German that came in was the regular army, calling the Wehrmacht. But this was the frontline troops, and they would just keep going forward. Right behind them came the Besatzer, the occupation forces, consisting of the Gestapo. I'm sure you know what the Gestapo was. Um, and uh, all, all different kinds of uh, police units. And they brought with them the Nuremberg Laws, which were already implied in, in Germany. Uh, the Nuremberg Laws uh, um, strengthened the uh, laws that were existing by the local police in the ghettos. And it was getting more stronger. Uh, people were being picked up from the street. People disappeared. And they were sent away and never see them again. Um, people were beating up, tortured, and so forth. And so it was getting the the laws in the ghetto were getting stronger and stronger every time. In 19, Plotsk, like I mentioned before, were 90 kilometers from the German border. Because of that, the area around uh, where we were living, which was called Masovshe, was incorporated into the Third Reich. And therefore, it was declared Judenrein, or free of, the, of Jews. Uh, the order came in February of 1941, that all the Jews from the ghetto, uh, in the middle of the night, without any prior warning, uh, the SS units came in into the ghetto and ordered all the Jews out from the ghetto. And they gave us 15 minutes to take whatever you could with them. So imagine that there's families that are proper living there from generation, from one generation to the other. And they could be given 15 minutes to leave everything behind and take whatever, only what they could. What do you do in a situation like that? First, you try to get a loaf of bread or something to eat, and everything else stays. Of course, the Polish population, by and large, was very anti-Semitic. And during that occasion, they couldn't wait the minutes to, uh, for the Jews to be taken out of the ghetto. So they could go in 
in, and rub the, the houses, uh, getting in it with the Jews for living. And they eventually got the area in the ghetto where the Jews were living for giving to the Poles. We were ordered to out in the uh, marketplace and they were waiting uh, trucks for us and we were shipped to a uh, to West Prussia, East Prussia, to the first camp in 1941. Uh, it was called, uh, it was East Prussia, Solda was the name of the camp. Over there, we got the first taste of what it is to live under the Nazis. Come and get them, go from the trucks and the buses and whatever, we had to run through a cordon, a very narrow place, and on each side were staying assessment and poles with sticks, with baseball bats, and they were hitting us as we were running along. We were, they were, those that got through good shape were placed in barracks that belonged before to the military barracks. There was nothing there except a little straw on the floor. We were still intact, the whole family, and uh, the uh, to start the punishment of the Jews or to show what they can do, they closed the, excuse me, the toilets were closed up. In the middle of the camp, they would dig they forced us to dig a hole like, like this here. And this was the uh, toilet. Whatever you had to do, men or women, you were staying on top of the hill and doing what you had to do. So imagine, we're still civilized people. We're being chased out from our homes. We, in our homes, we were living a civilized life. Although we were tortured, we were murdered, it was bad. But here, you got to stay if you got to go in the middle of the day. This is where you're going. Men, women, children. So that was terrible. And the barrack, of course, like I said, there was just a little straw. So that's where we were sleeping on that straw. Thank God we wasn't, wasn't there too long. We were shipped out from there after about two or three weeks, to um, uh, deep into Poland uh, in a town called Starachowice. In Starachowice, was already, I guess it was a very poor area of Poland. Uh, uh, they were um, people living, uh, when we in Plotsk were living, in two-room apartments, there were a lot of people that had a one-room apartment in the ghetto because it was a small town, and they had to get together the people and place them in that ghetto. Uh, I remember there was a shoemaker called Yakov uh, Mendel, and he had one room isn't wasn't much bigger than this one here, and had a little uh, shop where he was fixing shoes, and there was one bed. He had seven children. 
and the saying was when he needed a part to fix uh, a pair of sh shoes for a customer, he was trying to reach under the bed and he grabbed the kid by the legs and pulled it out because they were all over the place. Uh, and it was the, there the situation was getting very serious. There was an ammunition factory before the war. The Poles had their uh, ammunition factory. So now, of course, the Germans took it over, and they continued to produce ammunition that they needed for the army, but they also needed slaves. So we were the slaves, and we were taken to work in the ammunition factory. I was assigned to work uh, at the artillery shells. I was, uh, in 1939, I was 14 years old. And think about it. At the age of 14, under the Nazis, I was declared a slave, condemned to death for the only crime I have committed because I was born to Jewish parents. And that was my life from there on, a 14-year-old slave condemned to death. So we were placed there in the um, in Starovitz. And in the beginning... There was the factory, and we could go home to our families. We got an, a, a room with another family that had two rooms. So they forced to give up one room to, to my family, and they moved into another family. And so I don't think whether you married or whether you had families, but think what I'm going to say. It was difficult enough to place, to take a family of seven, place them, somebody else had to give up a room from their two rooms and just have other people living there. But the worst thing was for the two women to share the kitchen. Can you imagine, can you just, could you, can you just imagine uh, whether it's your mother's or your grandmother's or whatever, have to share that the people that live there, the woman that lives there, have to share the kitchen with my mother. Bad enough, they didn't like us. They didn't invite us. They didn't want us to be there. But we, my mother had to share, she had to share the kitchen with my mother. And let me tell you, there was no electric heating. There was no electric kitchen. It was coal and wood. That's what it was. And we didn't have any pots or anything. So we had to use their dishes and everything for them. So it was terrible. We were assigned to live there by the Jewish, by the JCRC, uh, not the ones from Boston. <laughs> It was called the Jewish Community Council. When we arrived there, we had to register to get a what's called a Lebensmittel card, a uh, ration card. If you didn't register for work, you didn't get a ration card. Uh, so um, with that ration card, uh, we, those that were working, got that whatever was on the ration 
uh, and the stars to, that can be bought. Again, no, nothing luxury. It was just enough, enough to survive for a couple of days. Because then in 1941, and I'm sure you heard about that, uh, the Van Zee Conference. The Van Zee Conference was in Berlin, was a villa that was owned by rich Jews before. They were sent out to a concentration camp before the German Jews was, was sent out before us. And, uh, and, the, and under the uh, direction of Himmler, which got orders from Hitler, um, a group of um, assessment and high-ranking Nazi were placed in that, uh, uh, pl- in that um, conference room and after five days of drinking, and this is my interpretation for it now, a bunch of drunk Nazis uh, were decided the fate of 11 million Jewish people that were living in Europe at the time. The plan that was worked out by them was the 11, those um, people, those Jewish people that live under the, the, under the occupation of the Germans will be exterminated. And the other six million that live in the unoccupied yet, when the German army moves forward and occupies those ter- territory, they will also come under those, under those laws. And beginning in 1942, um, they started to uh, uh, there was set up a uh, special unit, special SS unit that were coming into the ghettos, taking out the Jewish people, and take them to the uh, concentration camps. Um, you must uh, keep in mind that there were uh, three different kind of camps. One was the slave labor camps. Uh, people that were taken out from the ghettos and forced to perform slave labor. The second one was uh, uh, um, cut rations, cut rations with uh, slave labor, with hard work. So it was 12-hour shifts to work and very little food. The third one was the extermination in the gas chambers, in the, in the certain concentration camps that were built gas chambers. That were six camps. The first one was in a, a place called Oshvenshin. The Germans changed it to Auschwitz. Um, before the war is a Polish cavalry camp where the Polish army were practicing and staying there. And then they, the Germans turned into a uh, prison for Polish prisoners of war. In 1942, beginning of 1942, Himmler came there to see to visit it, and he liked what he saw, a prison, a camp, and uh, Polish 
prisoners of war, and he ordered that nearby another camp should be built, which was called Auschwitz II. There was Auschwitz I and Auschwitz II. The other one was only three kilometers apart. You get now every year, you got the, uh, the March of the Living, the people that are coming to Auschwitz and then walking the three kilometers to Birkenau. Because in Birkenau, that was the new camp, and that's where the guest chambers were placed. There were five guest chambers in Auschwitz. Auschwitz-Birkenau, actually, which it was the same thing, but it was called Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, in Birkenau, they built on the Himmler's orders, uh, five guest chambers and crematoriums. The biggest one, uh, let me start with the first one. The first one, there was a, a bunker where the Polish uh, military that was training there was keeping their supplies. So now they took that out, they closed the windows, they made a door from a steel, a steel draw door in a little hole, probably the size of this here, or this, that you can look in there and see what's happening. And that's when they uh, pre, uh, started to experiment with their gazing. And the first one that were actually killed there were the Russian prisoners of war. At that time, before that, Himmler brought some uh, chemists from uh, a, a company that produces chemistry, chem, chem, chemics, chemists, chemicals, yeah. chemicals, chemicals, chemicals. Right, thank you. Yeah. And they that they were, it was Cyclone B, that it was used before on killing mice and rats, and so they suggest that that if it can kill human things, it probably kill human beings too. And so they tried in that little guest chamber, uh, which was now turned like a store guest chamber, and they built nearby a crematorium where they can build an ovens with a big chimney in, a, uh, in an oven where they could burn the bodies. Uh, it's, uh, it's now, 80 years since I left the place with those tall chimneys. But whenever I go drive by or go by someplace and I see factories with tall chimneys, I get the charges. Uh, and, um, and to me, in myself, I say, is that something where we're going to wind up? But of course, it, uh, they were here in America. And, but just to say that it never got out from the system, seeing those chimneys when we were in Auschwitz and Birkenau, burn day and night. The smell, they were, when I was in Auschwitz in 1944, there were 10,000 people. Imagine 10,000. Um, a factory for the destroying, for murdering of people. 
Every day, 10,000 Jews were brought in by trains and open cattle trains and gassed and burned in the, in the crematoriums. As a matter of fact, the gas chambers that they built on Himmler's orders, the biggest one could hold 2,000 people at once. The others were 1,000, 1,500, but the biggest was 2,000 people at once. And so this way they can exterminate 10,000 people a day. Um, the gas chambers could, in 15 minutes, kill a full room with, uh, with people. It was just up to us to bring the bodies out, bring them up to the crematoriums, where, again, our Jewish uh, people, prisoners, were working at the, at the ovens and burned the, the bodies. Uh, the guest chambers can, can, couldn't uh, murder more people than that, but the crematoriums couldn't burn the bodies that fast. So they built outside ditches with crates, they put crates on top of it, and they started to burn additional people that didn't catch up with the gas chambers. And so they would put, uh, they said, um, uh, two, um, three people at the crates at one, but there were several ditches. Uh, and that was the, although it was very bad and terrible, horrible to see, uh, those people come as we came with the train in the selection by Dr. Mengeles and by other doctors. And those, and they were selected into two groups. One was to the left, one was to the right. Uh, you didn't know which one is which because Mengele didn't say anything. He was just pointing with the finger left. You were walking by him and he was just pointing left or right, left or right. And when the, this, uh, the group was uh, worked out, uh, we didn't know which way this group is going or where this group is going. It's just that later on or the next day, my, the group that I was in and my brothers, uh, the next day, didn't see the people that was that were placed on the left side. So we didn't know where the other group went, but we found out afterwards that they went straight to the gas chambers. We were taken to the say to the right, although we didn't know which is where, and we were placed on the gypsy camp. Yeah. I'm sure, you must have heard about the gypsies. The gypsies had a separate camp all by themselves. They were taken to Auschwitz before, before the Jews did. And, um, and they were living there with the families, and uh, they were allowed to take everything with them, uh, dogs, horses, uh, whole families. But then one night while we were, while we were breaked in and put, excuse me, and we were put in the uh, guest and the barracks, on the left side, they were empty. On the right side, the gypsies were living. And so during and the night, 
we heard um, a lot of noise. Uh, the Sunder Commander, I'm sure you know what the Sunder Commander was. It was a Jewish special unit that was picked out to work at the guest chambers and the crematoriums. Uh, it was uh, mostly, I'd say, 99% Jewish people in the Sunday Commando. And, um, and the SS came with the big trucks, and they just took the gypsies out, the whole families, just as it is, and took them straight down to the guest chambers and uh, guessed them, liquidated them. And so we were living on the gypsy camp for a, for a little while. And this is where I started to learn about life in Auschwitz, what it was. Uh, it was a tragic thing. Uh, a lot of people, and I'm sure you'll probably ask me too, how come, how did you survive? Uh, I tell you briefly, you had to take chances you had to be smart, and you had to have help. I had all three. Being on the gypsy camp, I don't know whether you know the layout of Auschwitz. It was, it's called a camp, but it's actually an area, an area which you see over here that goes this way, and there were barracks on each side. There were 31 barracks in each, each were called the camp, but it was all one camp, Auschwitz. On the other side, on the left side, were the uh, men's camp, the people, only men that were going to work out to work every day. On the other side of the uh, gypsy camp was the, what they called the hospital. The hospital was for people that didn't go to work, that got sick, they were placed there, and uh, they could live a day or two or whatever, and this was the next place to the death camp, to the, to the area there called Brzezinki, where the people were gassed and, and cremated. Um, I noticed, I was with two of my brothers, that the people from the men's camp that were working, coming back from work, especially the Sunday Commander and the Canada, would come to the fence and throwing over through the fence some bread, if you knew somebody. I didn't know anybody. But I saw that that man is coming every day, a man is coming there every day into the camp, to the gypsy camp, and picking out men that he takes over the other side for work that is so capable and professional. So I went to my two brothers and said, see, there is a man in civilian clothes coming here every day. I see him, he pick him out, picks out a group of men and takes it over. Next, I said, when he comes next day, I'm going to see what he's doing. So next day, the, the man comes and he starts uh, picking people. So I, he's looking for auto mechanics. 
So I go to my two brothers that were staying a little on the side, and I says he's looking for auto mechanics. So we're going to go over and register. And my brother says, are you insane? You're out the mechanics? In our city of Plotsk, if you saw a car go through the, through the streets, everybody opened the windows and looked out what this is. And here we're going to be out the mechanics. And since they kill us, they'll shoot us. I says, look, they might shoot us, but at least we'll, I'll die on a full stomach because over there you get food. Over here, we'll die starving, a skeleton. Over there, we'll die on a full stomach. So I go over to this man, and I take the two brothers, and they're afraid to get too close to me. So they're a little in the back, and they say, uh, and I say, yeah, we three are auto mechanics. He looks at us. My uh, younger brother is two years young, I think. He must have been 14 at that time, I was 16, and my other brother was two years older. He looked at the three of us, and he tapped me on the shoulder and says, you must be good mechanics, good auto mechanics. Oh, I said, sure, we can fix, we can fix all kind of autos. He says, okay, come here. He got a group of us, and he went over on the, to the man's side, and right away you got a, a soup, but now you got a, a thick soup. Here you got a watery soup. Over there you got a soup, what we said, that you could the spoon stick in and it'll remain standing. You know, that was a thick soup. And so I says to my brother, see, at least now we're not hungry. What's going to happen next, we'll see. So now we desire, and we got the numbers. I'm sure you've seen the numbers on the... On the sleeve, mine is A18651. And so we got the numbers, and now um, we from there we were taking to, from there we're taking to a separate part of the, of the camp, the barracks, where it was the uh, shower room. You ordered to go in and dress, and we placed in a barrack. And uh, you would see things having, hanging down from the ceiling. By now, we knew what's happening to the people, to the other people, that there is gas comes out from the ceiling. And we went in and we saw what's hanging down from the ceiling. And of course, uh, now the barrack, the doors were closed. And we don't know what it is. Whether it is, they say, we're gonna, you're going to get a shower now. Whether we got the, get a shower with water or a shower with gas, so you could see a a room full of uh, men and staying. Everybody looking up to the shiver and shaking, and looking up in the ceiling. Uh, what's going to come? And then all of a sudden, the thing opens up, and water comes out, cold water. You should have been there and see that screaming and the crying and hugging a bunch of uh, naked men, hugging each other because water came out, not gas. Uh, and before when we came in, they told us to undress and tie up the clothes because when you come out, 
you'll get back your your own clothes. It wasn't so. When we came out from the other door after we got the cold shower to get the clothes, you have people that were, it was called the uh, the uh, clothing room. And there were also prisoners working and they were throwing at you. A pair of pants, a jacket, that's all you get. Uh, if you're lucky, you're a little close, but otherwise you were short. You got a long pair of pants. If you're high, if you're tall, you got the, a short pair of pants. Not that they picked, they just, from a pile, they just picked out and throw it. Next, next, next. And Dante, from there, you were assigned to work. I was assigned to um, a uh, dismantling place. A dismantling place was a large area right outside the fence of the camp where platforms were coming every day open, train platforms with airplanes on them. It was airplanes that were shut down from the front lines. It was Americans, British, German, Russians, people you see sometimes on the uh, photos, on the television, how um, uh, airplanes that they came down some just uh, burst in flames. Others uh, would lose a, a wheel or a wing. But the main things what they were looking for is for the gasoline. Some that didn't explode had gasoline in them and the dashboards. For that, they have special men, were called Meister, specialists, Germans that were taken out to the dashboard and trying to see, find which are damaged and good the parts so that they took it off and they were shipped to Germany to the factories where they were building airplane. I was given a, a barrel and a hose and put me to an uh, airplane that was damaged on one side, but it was outside, and they said to scythe out the gasoline, because the Germans were in great need of uh, gas. And uh, first of all, I wasn't used to that, uh, because you get the, that the, the uh, fumes from the gasoline, and that makes you makes you drunk, or makes you dizzy. But I was I had no choice. Uh, if you were staying, you didn't work. You got uh, a very strong beating. Uh, but I didn't do it very much because a big Russian, there was Russians working there, Russians prisoners of war. A big Russian comes over to me and said, hey, what are you doing? That's my job. You give, give, me, give me this. You go there. I was happy to give him. They were drinking that stuff. There was no gas. There was no vodka, but that was uh, alcohol. So I was happy to give it to them, and I was set uh, assigned to the platform. After the good parts were taken away, and then it was cut, uh, the uh, aluminum, and put back on trains and shipped to the factories, to dismantling factories. So I was assigned to that, 
and I started to work with the big Russian. Big, I was a little skinny guy, and it was the Russians, big guys, prisoners of war. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so when we came back at night to the camp, I said to myself, I'm not going to live there very long. That's hard, carrying, you know, schlepping, lifting uh, uh, pieces of aluminum. So I says, I got to take a chance. In the morning, this is the gate. Was any, any one of you in Auschwitz? No? I'm going to invite you. So this is the gate where we were walking out. In the morning, they were lined up. In the morning, they were lined up the groups. So you had one group, another group, so lined up. And uh, this was, let's say, this was the uh, uh, street workers, those were carpenters, those were uh, plumbers. And I was in the line now, I was with the um, Tzeleg over here, the first line. And so I says, I got to get out of here and try the next line. But doing that, you took in a chance on your life. If they catch you doing that, you could have been shot right on the spot. So when this when this group started to move towards the gate to walk out, and um, as a part of it was already walking here, I took a chance and I jumped from here over to this group, and I, but they were lined up five in a row, and so I started, I somebody was pushed out. I pushed out this guy, and I said. Hey, what's happened here? What are you doing? Hey, babe. I said, I belong there, not uh, this guy. And then and we walked, and I walked out the fence. In the meantime, when this group came to the, to the fence, there was an extra man here. So they, 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 they placed him up in this place, whatever. I walked out with the... Um, um, Street, uh, Strassenbau, building the roads, a highway. <laughs> I wind up on the women's camp. And they gave me a shovel and uh, to build a ditch. Just uh, here they don't get with the machines. We do it with the uh, shovels. So I'm staying the whole day. I'm cold. I'm hungry. No good here either. What do you do? If I keep jumping like that, I'll wind up in the guest chamber. But during the day, just about before we checking in, just before we going back to the camp, I see an assess woman. You know, there were assess men and assess woman. I see an assess woman walking, and with her nearby walks a civilian, a girl, uh, dressed in a nice blue um, skirt and a jacket and a white uh, blouse with a collar over the blue. 
And I says, look at this girl. She must be here somebody walking with an SS woman and all dressed up so nice. And the clothes as she walked towards where I was staying, the familia says, my God, I know this girl. This girl is called, is Rachel. Rachel Tippett, I went to school with her. She lived in, in Plotsk next door to ours. And I says, oh my God, if she is walking with the SS woman, maybe she can help me. And so I'm kind of climbing, I'm trying to, I says, maybe when they get very close, I can jump out and talk to her. And she recognized me. And so she goes like this, the SS woman shouldn't see to me to stay, not to get out, to stay. Uh, they assume I could have been shot because sometimes they don't interpret it that we're trying to run, either to run away or to attack the SS woman or a sex man. And so she goes like that, and as she walking by near the ditch, she went like this. And they passed by, and I said, see, my God, my luck. I know Rachel is dear. She could help me. Nothing, and she just kept walking. But it didn't take long. About 10 minutes later, I say, this girl, Rachel, and another girl are running towards where I'm working. They run by near the ditch, and... One throws a loaf of bread into the ditch to me, and she says, when you come back to the camp, go to the Sunday commander. You know what the Sunday commander is? Sunday commander is the people that were working the guest chambers, the crematoriums. Go to the guest chambers. Your cousin, Alec Malenka, is working in the, in the uh, Sunday commander. And the Sunday commander had everything because uh, when the transports arriving from the people, the Germans were taking, but the good stuff, when a transporter come, and especially from the rich countries, from France, from Denmark, from Hungary, they were bringing wine and, and uh, 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 canned goods. Uh, the bread, they don't want to bother with the, with the dairy bread. So the Sunday commander took it. It wasn't it was illegal, but they they looked away for that. And so she says, when you come back, you run to the Sunday commander. Your cousin, Elek Malenka, is, is working there. Well, I couldn't wait for the group to go back to the uh, come back to the um, to the barrack, to the camp. The Sunday commander was separated from all the other people in Barak 10 because they didn't want that they should share what they do during the day to the other people that might come out on the outside. So, um, so um, I went in and I, the minute I came in, we were getting, when we came back from work, we were getting a slice of bread and a little watery soup. I didn't want the soup. I didn't want the piece of bread. I want to get around to Sunday Commando, where my cousin was. 
because I knew that the Sunday commander ought plenty of plenty of food. So I came to the Sunday com- to the door. So they were they were separated from the uh, rest of the people. And there was a door. Near the door was staying um, um, a couple. You know what a couple is? You know what a couple? A couple was staying there with a baseball bat. I so I go to go over to him. And I say, excuse me, I don't want to say you. I say, excuse me, sir, uh, my cousin is inside. My cousin is Elek Malenka. I would like to see him. He says, oh, yeah, you got a cousin in there? And he picked up that baseball bat and he hit me over the head, over the back. I turned around, I ran, and he was chasing me and kept hitting me. Believe me, it didn't hurt so much the, the, the beating that I got with the uh, baseball bat, that the pain that I won't be able to see my cousin, that he could help me and give me food. But I'm crying, but I'm not going away from there. Then a few minutes later, two people come out from there in civilian clothes. All the prisoners were wearing you know, the striped uniforms. These two come out of them. And one is a big guy. And so I go over to them and I say, I'm crying. And I say uh, again, excuse me. And I was crying. I says, my cousin, Elek Malenka, is here. I would like to see him. He says to me, Elek Malenka is your cousin? I said, yes. So he grabs me like this, see? And he holds me and he says to the other fella, go in there and bring out Alec. I want to see whether he's telling the truth or not. If you're lying, if you're making up, then I'll kill you. I says, yes. And I, I, I says, I, yes, I, I'm crying, yes. If it's Alec, Alec, uh, well, the other fellow went in, and he comes out with two men. One went in, three coming out now. This tall guy was a couple. Couple, the Sunday commander was a big, was a big man, was a big thing. And three of them come out, and this t- big guy that holds me says, "All right, show me which one is Alec Malenka." And I'm crying, and I says, I, I don't, I never saw him. They lived, he was from a different city, but I knew that we have relatives in the other city in Dobjin, and he maybe, and I know about the family. And so um, one of those other two people says to me, uh, What did you say is uh, the man that you're looking for? I says, Alec Malenka. I says, do you know Alec Malenka's father? I says, yeah, I know my father. His name is Chaim, his wife, and you know, the names of the family, what are they doing? They had a bakery induction and so forth. After a while, he says to that couple, he knows, he's all right. And so now he takes me over, and he takes me in. Now the guy 
the gate, the guy that was hit me, standing at the door, when he see them being led in by important people, he doesn't say nothing. My cousin takes me on his bunk, listen to this, and he pick, picks up the straw sack, and there is a grocery store underneath his straw sack. He says, see this? When we come home from work from the day from the crematoriums, from the guest chambers, we're smuggling in things. And so here it is. So he says, right away he gave me food. I ate and uh, I said I got two brothers out. He gave me bread for them also. And now he says, uh, where did you work today? What commander did you come with? And I told him the street bar, the highway bars. He says, you're not going there anymore. You're going to work with the sewer cleaners because he had a sister on the women's camp. And the sewer cleaners were sewer. There were no sewers. It was toilets. And so we were assigned to clean the toilets. So he says, went, looked up the couple for this uh, group, for this uh, commander, bribed him, and he uh, said, in the morning, you wind up over here in my group. And there, over there, I came there, and my cousin told me where my cousin, the, the girl, works, where she is. She is working in the washroom. She's hiding. He pays for her because they had plenty money, gold, uh, uh, gold dollars, what they, what they found, what people were bringing. <clears throat> and, of course, uh, so he says, you're going to be the contact between me and my sister. And so, of course, when I, my, my cousin, the girl, saw me, uh, she just know my name. and My name was Rulek in Poland. And she had a brother by the same name. And so she was very happy and took me in right there where they were working with a, <clears throat> a few girls that had privileges in the washroom. And from now on, you'll be coming here. And so there was a group of 12. We had a roll wagon, and there was a roll wagon, a barrel-shaped, like a bottle. That's the wagon, the roll wagon. And we were 12 people. Over here were six, three and three, just uh, um, like horses uh, had those uh, things tied up to pull. There were three on this side and three over here pulling. And, and there were six in the back pushing. So I was among the pushers. We had a long stick with a with a on bed attached a like a bucket attached over here a small one and we came wherever there was a, a toilet excuse me we took out the vase put it in the bell there was no um draw door so you could pull it out and there was one in the back in the back you pulled it up when we went through collecting the vase there were two places that we brought it, either at the um, 
either at the um, uh, fields that the Germans took away from the Polish farmers, and they used this as fertilizer. It was the season that it was not needed in the fields, so there was a big cesspool, a huge cesspool, probably as big as this uh, uh, this backyard here, and so we opened up the uh, the bell and. By tilting out, everything came out. And so there now, I had plenty of food protection because my cousin paid the couple from that group to take care of me. It was a privileged group. Every time we were going out, so now me, uh, before whether I, whether I um, was starving for a piece of bread, I had here bread to give away. Because in what we did in that battle, we did build a wire, see, inside to hang in, in, in inside. With every group that was going out to work, there was one or two, depending on the size of the group, was S-man walk, SS-man walking with them. With us, they don't want to go. Why? The the area around the bell isn't, the smell isn't too good. They didn't want to get by in case, you know, spill out and get on their uniforms. So they let us go. As long in the morning, the couple had report at the gate. Couple so-and-so with 12 people leaving for work, and when we come back, the same thing. Now, other groups were uh, what they called, you know, they checked them, see whether they're not bringing any contraband, any smuggling thinking. With us, they don't get to the to the barrel. The couple went to the window and reported. I said, get in again. They were afraid that they might get dirty. One day, the guild that I knew from the other camp said to me, I need a pair of shoes. Could you organize a pair of shoes for me? And I was going every day in the crematorium, in the guest chambers. And so there you could see after a transport came, there was a, a pile of shoes as high as the building. And there was a pile with clothing. And so I, I said to my cousin that was working there, he says, I need a pair of shoes for somebody. He says, pick out a pair of shoes. So I picked up a nice pair of shoes, and I brought it, brought it put it on her or her bunks, which I do, did every day f for bread also. And in the women's barrack, just like in the men's barrack, was a supervisor, also a prisoner, a woman. She's in charge of a section. So if I would put the bread on her bank, on her bunk, it wouldn't last there five minutes. It would have been ripped apart. But she was a supervisor, and I had to share and give her some bread too. And so she watched that when Anna comes home, the bread is, the bread is there for her. Why? Because she is going to get her portion too. And so this way, uh, it worked beautiful. It worked very good. 
And that's what I was working the entire day. I'm just getting to sort of connect that one with the other. Um, so after the war, uh, people that were special groups or anybody, if you caught a, a couple or somebody that did harm during in the in the in the camps to other people, stealing food, beating things like that, they got repaid for it. If you would hear in a in a in a place and some place, oh, a couple, a couple, that person would get a very bad uh, payoff. So here, he, um, Emily knows, you know, I was invited every year to Germany to speak in Germany. So that must have been about four or five years ago. I'm in Germany and uh, I'm invited uh, to group. There was a few couples that uh, were in Germany and we were invited to somebody, to a German family for dinner, they made a dinner for the a few Holocaust survivors that came to to Germany. I come in into a house, and the minute I open the door, there's a man sitting there in a wheelchair, and he sees me and he looks at me and he, and he goes, "You, you, you're alive." You know what that meant? A death penalty right away. The way. He screamed and said, you, you, to the, to the rest of the people, whether it was in that room or any place else, meant that this person did the wrong to other prisoners. And that's why either he got a beating, a bad beating, or he could have been killed there. So I'm staying there, and I'm shivering, and I'm looking Who's jump gonna jump on me first? Where am I gonna get the first hit from who? And then it continues. Says, you remember when I came to Auschwitz, you were the first one that gave me a piece of bread. You can imagine. I started to breathe. Up to this moment, I didn't breathe. I started to breathe. Ah, and I said, yes. Believe me, I didn't remember. At that moment, I was far away. But I says, yes, I remember you. I remember you came. And he starts, he gave bread to me, the first piece of bread that I got in Auschwitz. And to other people, he gave bread to people that, so everybody made me, oh, yeah? How did you have bread to give away? Everybody was hungry in Auschwitz. You had bread to give away. But then I had to explain what I'm saying now. I was working at that Rollwagen, filthy. Uh, the bread we got was filthy. Uh, we'll, before we put it on the wire, we looked for a piece of newspaper, of everything, everything to wrap around a little, make it a little cleaner. Then when we came back to the camp, we opened up the opened up the, 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 the top door and pulled out some of the bread. It, um, it wasn't like it's coming from the Waldorf Astoria, but you know, people, hungry people eat anything. 
We cleaned it up, we rushed it up. Uh, they, everybody came, know, knew us, and uh, oh, the, the, the roll wagon was coming. And so you give them a piece, you give them bread, whatever you could, and they were they, they were glad to get it. They cleaned it up, like I said. It didn't smell good, it didn't taste so good, but once it went down into the stomach, it was all right. It filled up the stomach. And so this is how I was working in that in Auschwitz till till the um, Russians moved started to move into Poland. And um, I was uh, shipped out with other people from that group to Stutthof, Neigdansk. I don't know whether you heard about it. Another camp, Stutthof. Stutthof was, Auschwitz was bad because people were killed in the guest chambers. Stutthof, uh, the guest chambers, there was one guest chamber that was already shut down. As a matter of fact, there are a group of Hungarian women naked already in the guest chamber. And they were taken out from there because the order came from Berlin to stop the guessing. So from there, but you thought that Auschwitz was bad. Auschwitz was good. According to Stutthof, Auschwitz was bad. In Stutthof, there was no work. We were just sitting outside. Stutthof is near Gdansk in Poland, near the Baltic. It's cold. It's raw. It's cold. Uh, yesterday, if we're out yesterday, there was just a little bit of the how it was there. They chased us out from the barracks at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we were staying out cold with a little jacket and a pants that we got in Auschwitz, the summer, called the summer uniform. So we got in a group and it was uh, 20, 30, 40, whatever we could. Everybody formed and bundled, you know, backed up and it was called the a group that we were heating each other with uh, our body heat. And then in the evening, we went in, they let us in, and we got um, a slice of bread, a little watery soup, but at least now we were inside. And inside, we got the bunk. No, well, maybe it was this bit of this table, but a little longer. And there were four people that were laying in the, on that bunk. And then one day, we were without notice, without anything, we just put on a train, on cattle trains, and shipped out from there. We didn't know where we're going. We know what we went through, what we learned during those years. And after a few days in a cattle train, without food, just a bucket of water and a bucket as a toilet, and we were there, I think it was about three days from uh, Stutthof to, um, to till the trains opened up, and here we are in Germany. 
uh, not far from Stuttgart, a place called Talfingen. Uh, we yelled, they let us out from the from the uh, kettle cars, and we had to walk the rest from the train station to an airfield uh, where airplanes were stationed. Uh, and then they, we were supposed to build and enlarge the airfield. It was close to the f- uh, French border, and the Germans had their stationed night fighters, number one, for the protection of the large city of Stuttgart, and secondly, to protect uh, Germany from the airplanes that came from, uh, from France. <coughs> um, so uh, there wasn't even a barrack. They placed us in a hunger. Uh, there was no barracks. There was a little straw until they uh, put some bunks up. Uh, food they were bringing from a, from a kitchen from some place. It was a terrible thing. It was getting one was getting worse than the other, and the food, the rationing of the food, that by then the Germans didn't enough for themselves. So of course we got just a very very little of it. And um, I was assigned to work again on the um, uh, uh, building, digging a, a ditch on the edge of the uh, of the airfield. Others were building, were cutting uh, trees out um, to make the plane. Everything was needed to make the plane the thing bigger. Then I was transferred to a, um, a uh, quarry. You know what a quarry is? Break stones. And, um, you know what a machine Break up the stones, and then there's a machine. Put it in there, and they break it to whatever size the builders need. Uh, small pieces, bigger, whatever. Um, and that's where we're working on the outside. It was bitter. It was... Uh, um, November, December, January, it was outside, and there was no excuse for snow or rain or cold during the winter. They needed the st- stone at the at the qu- at the airfield where they were building the highway. So we got to work. You came back at the night from the from work. Uh, and had to take off your shoes. You were wet and tie up the, the shoelaces, and you use this as a pillow. Because there was no pillows. There was just a few people in the bunk laying. And um, But again, I was lucky, because we were walking from uh, the camp in Talifingen to the place called Royston through two, through two villages. And although it was all Nazis, but there was still, as Anne Frank said, despite of everything, there's people still have a people still have a good heart or something like that. So there was one family just as we were walking through the streets. On the side, there was a house, the first house near the quarry, that the woman, the, the man was in the military. 
that she, she would put out a bundle on the side in front of the house. Uh, so I noticed what she was doing. So I was watching already. Every day when we were walking there, I was just watching where the guard is. And if the guard was nearby, I just ran out, grabbed it, and kept going. One day, she took me in into the kitchen and said, sit down, don't worry, sit down. And she gave me some leftovers from the food, from the dinner. Uh, there was another family on the other side. There was a man from Stuttgart. He had a, a factory built uh, chains to airplanes. So he was working for the government. And so, but he didn't want the family in Stuttgart because Stuttgart was being built. So in that uh, village Royston, he rented a home for the family to bring the family over so they can stay there. He, whenever he went down from the house, he had a little brown bag. So I noticed, and he just threw it there in the side. And I was watching him. And so we were getting. As a matter of fact, before the, uh, before the end of the war, uh, in 19, that was already 45, he took my friend, Morris Kornblit, out from the camp in his car, away to Stuttgart, and they, they were hiding him by his sister, whose husband was in the military. And he survived the war. He died now in, in Philadelphia. I was living in Philadelphia. And so this was, um, the war was coming to an end. Before that, uh, we were in that, that on the airfield came the Americans, what they called the bandits, and threw some bombs on the airfield, on the planes, destroyed the planes, destroyed the airfields. We were not needed anymore. So they shipped us to another place called South, closer to the Swiss border. And there the uh, Germans were building a Elschief um, um, factory, making drawing in the Germans when they lost Romania, they lost oil, they, needed, they didn't have any oil. So they were producing, we're doing it here now on a large scale, oil from rocks, from shale. And so we were building the, the factory. And of course, the bandits came again, destroyed the factory, destroyed the uh, American barracks. But then, you know, Himmler, uh, Gehring, used to promise uh, Hitler. He's, if Herring, Gehring, Hermann Gehring was in charge of the German uh, Luftwaffe, of the Air So he promised Hitler, if one enemy plane will cross the German border, you can call me Jaime. Jaime was a very bad name in Germany. It's a Jewish name. So he said to Hitler, you can call me Jaime if American planes will come here. By then, there was no German Air Force anymore. They were all destroyed. And so now, uh, there was no more gas chambers. There were no more crematoriums. 
And I said, there is a little hope for us. Why? We are in the heart of Germany. There is no gas chambers here. There is no crematoriums. And the Germans will not take the chance to kill thousands of people in their homeland in front of their houses. So we have a chance here that they let us live properly. And when the Americans come, we will liberate it. But they, they had other, other plans, and they decided to take us on the dead march to be destroyed. Uh, we walked the first night during the day, they didn't walk us because the, the airplanes could see us. So um, during the night, we were walking, and at night they played us in, in a barn. After having a big barn, but we placed us in the barn, and then we had an argument. We had an argument outside. There were two groups of, between the, guard, the guards. One group said, "We're in Germany now. The day the war is going to be over, any day, we could hear the shooting and the artillery fire. Our homes are not far from here. We can kill them off here." And we'll go home. So they placed us in the, in the barn. And the one group that recommended that started to put gasoline underneath, the, underneath around the barn. And they were going to throw a match at it and burn us, kill us in the barn there. But there was another, the other group which didn't allow and says, no, we can't do that. The Americans are very short distance from here. When they come and they'll see what we did, they'll hold us responsible. Our orders are to bring him to that place. We'll bring him there. On the second day, they, we came to a uh, river. And it was a bridge. And we, although there was no room to go, we were just walking around in circles. So they were going to take us across the river to the bridge. But when we came near, near the bridge, there were um, German engineers working underneath the brain, placing uh, dynamite to, to blow the bridge. And those, so that's what they said, the engineers, you cannot cross the bridge, the Americans are there, but what we can do, put them on the bridge, we'll blow the bridge, they'll fall, they'll kill them, uh, they'll fall in in the war, then you'll be able to go home. But the others said the same thing. No, the Americans will see what we did and uh, we'll be responsible for it. And so on the third day after crossing the bridge, I don't know who heard about the Black Forest, Schwarzwald, the Black Forest. Uh, and so we were walking through the Black Forest. In the middle of that, uh, I... Um, leader of the of the SS of the guards called everybody together and he says now he's a, a good man he likes us he says uh, you know for the first time in five years we were not left alone by the Germans they were afraid they might have run away or whatever they were they didn't let us out of their eyes here now they say 
uh, there's a village ahead of us. We are tired. We want to go to the village, refresh and get some food. I order you to get off the highway, sit by the wayside, and when done, we'll come back and pick you up and we'll keep walking. So we knew already what that means and what's happening. As soon as they started to walk, we took off into the forest and brought waves. And, um, and there were still some people who were shooting, were being shot because uh, the German, the military, were running back from the front line. And so they were running, they were, we here, we were running across their lines. And so some people got shot. I got in into the forest and I can, could run. I didn't look back or to the side. I just kept running. And as I was deep enough uh, to be able to hide in the underbrush, there were four other men. So we got together and they, um, it was cold, April. So we sat down for the night again bundle up uh, body to body in this way we stayed through the night and during the night we heard a lot of commotion on the highway but we didn't know what's going on there so in the morning one of our fellas crawled down from the forest to the highway and he came back looking like Santa Claus with a blanket with he said there on the end of the, of the forest is a, a truck overturned. He didn't know what, who, whether it was American or a French or a British. He just found a blanket there, so he put it all on the blanket, put it on his back, and he came back. We sat down. We had a fiesta, and then we went down to the highway. It was the French Free Army, the Gauls Army. They stopped the trucks, they stopped the tanks, they put us on on the trucks and um, and took us into the near to the closest village and placed us there in an abundant school. That was the school was closed for the summer and this was now closed. So uh, we were staying there, they put us on there with nothing, but it looked like they had experience prior to come here in French, because French was liberated also by the American, because with them came already a field kitchen. You know what's a field kitchen? And nurses and doctors, and the very sick were being placed in ambulances and taken to the nearest big German city and placed in the hospital. The others uh, were taken from there into the closest villages and um, and placed with German families. And were placed with German families. So myself and another boy were placed with a German family and they were ordered, they had to take care of us and uh, give us food. So for the first time in probably five years, I'm sleeping in a clean bed. And after a few days in that um, 
after a few days with the German family, which they were not happy, of course, to have us. They weren't too happy with us there, and we weren't too happy to be with them. So uh, had something had to happen. I know one morning I got up and I was screaming, I was crying. Who am I? What am I doing here? What is my name? I had no name, I had a number. In, in camp I was called number, prison number, so and so and so. What am I gonna do? Is this gonna be my future? I have no profession, I have no education. I'm not gonna stay here with the Germans the rest of my life. And so I said, I got him. I'm gonna into the world to look for maybe somebody for my family. Where is my mother? Where is my brother? Where is my brothers? What happened to them? And so uh, I just went out and I walked. Walked on the highway, imagine. Imagine the thinking. Here, I was already 20 years old. I was liberated on my 20th birthday, April 25th, 1945. I was born April 25th, 1925. And so I was walking and walking, and I didn't, there wasn't see, see nothing. Then I saw a house, a house and a big uh, barn. And the barn, and it was open a jar, a little bit open. I was curious, so I went over to the door, and I looked in there, and what did I see? A motorcycle, a nice motorcycle staying in there. So I was curious. I opened the door and went in and uh, take a look. The key is still in the motorcycle. Hmm. I turned the, 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 from the tank, the cover from the tank, and it's full with gasoline. I says, this must belong to a, to a higher-ranking Nazi because Germany didn't have gasoline. The civilian population have no motorized vehicles. Everything is taken for the, for the military. And I pulled out that motorcycle, and the only thing I knew about the motorcycle, that when they go, by the, the handle go, and then you get on it, and it goes. So I tried, I did the same thing. I turned the key, and I got on the motorcycle, and, and it went, and uh, like a bronco, you know, the horses, the broncos, it threw me off. I cut my leg, I cut my beautiful pants that I was wearing. And, uh, but I said, this is my lifeline. I'm not giving up. And so I went again on that motorcycle. The second time, it still threw me off. I go a third time. And let me tell you something. I never had a motorcycle. I was never sitting on the motorcycle. Never when I had a motorcycle, I didn't have a bicycle. But I said, this is my lifeline. This can take me places. At the third time, and this is, and this is a, um, uh, a um, something which I can't understand. 
um, almost 80 years, 70 odd years. I'm 95 years old. I can't figure out how the first two times it didn't do nothing. It threw me off. At the third time, I was driving, riding on it like I was an expert, as if somebody was guiding me. I can't figure out what happened. But I didn't go very far because there was the four sons of occupation. You know, Germany had the French, the American, the British, and the Russians. So next to the French border was the American. So as I go a little distance, and I was stopped and arrested by MPs, American MPs. Here, I was lucky to see already Americans. Um, and so they arrested me and they paid papers. I didn't have any papers, I had nothing. So they took me into Stuttgart to the headquarters. It was General Eisenhower's headquarters. Stuttgart was pretty badly damaged during the war, but there was a building, a, a tall building, uh, a big building that wasn't damaged. And so the Americans took it over and make, made this the General Eisenhower's headquarters before it belonged to the Gestapo. It was the Gestapo's building. And so they took me up into that office and I was sitting on one side and the two of them on the other side. They were questioning me and I told them what I deserve, what I knew, that I was just liberated from a concentration camp and, um, and I um, haven't got nothing. I lost my family and I'm out looking for my family. And so I got arrested by the MPs and they investigating me these two that investigated now these two were wearing um, fatigues, you know, the fatigue uniforms. When they left, a, a man came in, a tall man, an officer, wearing an Eisenhower jacket, a green military shirt, you know, a tie, pants with a stripe, he and the leg. And he sat down at the, and he started to ask me. And that's all I could tell. I couldn't tell anything else. There was nothing to tell. I don't know. I'm coming. I was just liberated and blah blah blah, and I'm out looking for my family. So he sits for a minute and he looks at me. He says, "I'll help you." Uh, the rank I don't know. From what I know now, the ranks that I learned in America that he was a major or a colonel, something like that. And so he um, said, I'm gonna help you, I'm Jewish too. And that was the biggest mistake that I made, that I didn't ask that man his name and the address in America. I would walk barefoot to California, wherever he was from, if I'd know where he is and who he is, for what he did, uh, what he did for me. And uh, so he says, "I'm going to help you." He says, "Come with me." Went to a room. He says, "Go in there, 
get undressed and put your clothes here. I went in, it's a shower room, you know, in a building called General Eisenhower's headquarters before it was the Gestapo headquarters. So uh, I went in, it's a shower. The first time I took a shower, a nice warm shower, in the camp, if we got a cold shower, once in six months or once a year was good. So I got a nice shower. I put the clothes outside. When I opened up the door, it wasn't there. I said, where am I going to go, naked? But then a little further down, there was civilian clothes laying. And, um, and then he came and he says, put, put on that. The, the um, clothes that I was wearing, that I put out, they probably burned it. That's how filthy it was. Covered with lies. Excuse me. It's not that I had lies. I was covered with lies. So then he took me into another room, and it was a, a, a table with a white tablecloth. A white tablecloth. I didn't sit and eat at a white tablecloth. I don't know when. And, uh, and there was a dish with a beautiful meal. Uh, the only thing, the problem was that the dish was not edible. I was trying. It was too hard to eat. Here I see there are things that was edible. That dish wasn't edible. But I can assure you, there wasn't that much left in that dish. And after I got through eating, he gave me papers signed by General Eisenhower. And he says, that will take you. You know, the war was still on. In this area, the Americans was already, but further down, the war was still going on. Because that was April 27th, 27th, 28th. I think the war was over. Uh, April, May, or June? I think it was June. June, June 6th, wasn't it? June 6th. So he said, um, when you, there's uh, American units stationed on the highway, the forests and doorways, wherever you'll go, you'll stop, and you'll go there, and it says that they should help you with food, with gasoline, and with safety. I said, beautiful. I went and I started to go, and every place I went, I stopped, they filled it up for me, and um, nobody bothered me. But when I, but they said, the man, the officer, said, when you go down from here, you go in that, in that street around the corner there is a Jewish committee. You go in there and you tell them that we send you, they'll help you. I did, I went in, and there was a big room, and on the wall, a big white wall, was names of the people that registered. I had to register too. My name is Arbeiter, it's with an A. I took on top, and the name, the first name is Aaron Arbeiter, my younger brother. I, 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 I am, Stopped, I was speechless. I almost fainted. I was crying that at least 
one of my brothers is alive. Where is he? Uh, in another DP camp in Feldafingen, near Munich. So I'm planning to go in the morning and pick him up and bring him to me and we'll be together. While I stay there, there's a girl comes over and she says, aren't you, uh, she didn't know my name, aren't you the one that uh, you were in that camp and there was a girl that helped you with food, you were, you were sick. Oh, I didn't tell you how that happened that I was sick, what happened there. And I says, yes. He says, she's alive, you know, she survived, she's alive. She is in Bergen-Belsen. Oh, I says, I'm very happy. Are you going back there? And she says, yes, I'm going there tomorrow. So I says, would you please do me a favor? When you'll see this girl, please tell her that you saw me and that I'm alive and that, as you can see, I'm all right, I'm alive. And she says, I'll do that. Later on in the afternoon, I said to myself, Izzy, you made a big mistake. That was wrong what you did. That girl did so much for you. And you you have a motorcycle, you have papers, and he's asking somebody, the least you could do is you should go there and thank yourself. And so I checked with my secretary, my scheduling secretary. <laughs> and so I, I, my, she said my calendar was clear for tomorrow, <laughs> for the next day. So in the morning I went to Munich, picked up my brother, brought him to Stuttgart, and, um, and I went to Bergen-Belsen with a motorcycle. And uh, I remember in Kassel, places that were destroyed. And um, I came to Bergen-Belsen, and uh, there is a the camp there is a fence. There is a wire fence around, and an armed man with a rifle stays near the gate, and there's a lock with a key. Oh. I came there, and... Um, the man with the rifle, I said, you can't go in. Nobody can go in. Nobody can go out. So I showed him the papers. Oh, they said, the signature, uh, General Eisenhower, opened the door and let me in. And there I find out where that girl, I'm not revealing yet who and where and when, that girl, where she is in which, in which room, in which barrack. And so I went there. I came in and I was very happy to see her. She was very happy to see me. Now she says, no, yeah, no. Uh, over there, we're happy, and they live in a room which, which it wasn't much bigger than this one here. There were five girls living there. They had bunks, double bunks, two, two, and one. And there was one that was uh, a leader, the oldest, I'm sure it's everywhere in uh, in organizations and schools and and whatever, there's always a leader. And uh, she didn't like me from the very beginning. She saw. She says, um, "This man, he cannot stay here. No, 
At first we said, uh, uh, you know, people couldn't go out, but people were walking in the afternoon. There was an owl, an owl. And so people were walking down there. So I said to her, would you like to go down for a walk with me or a light on the motorcycle? She said, yes, I would go. But you see, there's five girls here that live in this room, and we have only one pair of shoes between the five of us. And today is not my day to wear the shoes. Five, five girls, one pair of shoes. So today, she says, it's not my day to wear the shoes. I said, show me which girl has the shoes today. I went over, I bribed her, I, I begged her. She gave her the shoes. <laughs> she gave she gave her the shoes. One shoes size everybody. One size fit everybody. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, yeah. so we get that ride on the motorcycle and he <clears throat> and the people they they locked up, they can't go out and they say, Everybody is staying and who is this? A civilian clothes? A motorcycle, uh, a head, you know, a motorcycle head with glasses. Who is he? Yeah. What is he doing here? So then we, we got through riding and then we went back to the room. And now I asked him, is there a hotel or a motel someplace where I can uh, sleep through the night? Because tomorrow I'm out of here. I'm going to America. I'm going back to the America. I said, in America, it's still, uh, it's good. It's still America, no matter where it is. Uh, they've got plenty of food. We're free. You can see I got a motorcycle. I, I can go any place I want. And you are still behind, uh, behind the walls, behind locked fence. So uh, I says, tomorrow morning, I'm getting out of here, back to the American, to the American song. So the girl, the oldest, says, I don't like this guy. He didn't come here to say thank you to you. He's a Casanova. <laughs> He's a gigolo. <laughs> I, I didn't know what a gigolo means. I didn't know what a gigolo means. I didn't know what a... Five sisters. What what that means, but I said, look, one night, I'll live through. So she says he cannot stay here. He didn't Not come. The bed. He <laughs> says to her. He says to her. He didn't come uh, to say thank you to you. He came here for something else. And so I said, I didn't have to travel a thousand kilometers. For that something else, it's available in Stuttgart too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you can get it at a discount price. She told me, "You go ahead." So she says, you just get out. But still, that girl says, like <laughs> "No, he can slip here. He is not gonna slip. We're not gonna let him." So, but the girls got together, and they had a conference. They say, but can't put him outside, it's cold. He's got to sleep someplace. Okay. So finally they talked it in, and she agreed that I can sleep, but not on the bunks with the girls. <laughs> I can sleep on the floor. I okay. says, look, I slept five 
years on the on the plane, boots on the floor. So one more night isn't gonna kill me. So I lay down on the floor, no pillow, no blanket, and she took the chair and put it near my head, and was sit was sitting there the whole night, watching me, that I shouldn't move. Thank God. I had a strong brother, <laughs> and I didn't have to move. <laughs> in the morning, we got up. I look out the window. My motorcycle isn't there. Somebody took it. Who can take it? There is two kind of people in the camp, prisoners and the British. So the people say they, it must be only the British would have taken it. And up there is the office. You go up there and report it. I went there and the officer in charge, I showed him the papers. He right away says to the sergeant, go and bring him the motorcycle. Now it's a new capital starts. So I says, well, I'm going. You want to go with me? No. You can go. If you don't want to go, I'm sorry. So now all the five get together and the other four says, don't go with him, don't go. He is not clear. He will use you and abuse you and then leave you. I don't go with him. I tell him, when I'm not gonna, I'm not going. I'm not gonna get, you know, just to see it. I go on a roof and I'm going down from the roof. Mm. That's all. I have no place where to go. Mm. Yeah. I told them. That's all. They didn't want it. They wanted be three, five sisters. Mm. We called those five sisters. Mm. Yeah. We go into Israel. You mm. know. So, uh, <coughs> so. So. <coughs> after a while, she agreed. She says, "I'm going. I'm going with them. I'll take a chance." Yeah, that's and right. And she took a chance, and we came right. here. Yeah. yeah. And so now, <clears throat> now when we talk, you know, jokingly, yeah. and I ask, are you, aren't you happy you came to America, you didn't go to Israel with the other girls? Because when she came in Stuttgart, we gave her a little apartment Yeah. in Stuttgart, and she... Uh, uh, moved there, and she was living, and um, living in the same city, we used to bump into, you know, one another. Uh, we s then we started to see each other more often, then we started to wait, to date, and until one day I went down on both of my knees, and I proposed, I said, would you marry me? And that's again, she says, before I finish the sentence, she says, yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, she says now, it took me quite a while to decide. <laughs> and I say, you mean like a minute? <laughs> so we have fun over it. Yeah. And the kids are, have fun, they love and so. And this is now a seven, 70. 79. Seven, no, no, 75. 70 yeah, 70 something. Yeah. 74 years. 74 years. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
You remember, you were there. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so, was well, seventy years, and so I say, uh, um, after seventy years, so now I forgot where I was. <laughs> they got me, of course. Yeah. We're 70, talking. Seventy-four years later. Yeah. Seventy-four years later. Yeah, Four. we have, uh, no, right, first I'm looking where, after 73 years that we're married, and they're looking, we're st I'm still looking for those girls <laughs> that told them not to go with me. <laughs> the tribunal. Right. Yeah. Um, so I ask everybody now, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you too, if you come across those girls, <laughs> let me know where they are. <laughs> Prove I'm wrong. So I will bring them here and show them. Does she look beaten up? I did it myself too. I know what to do. Mm -hmm. That's all. I know that's Hiva nice. Yeah. You know, I helped him. He helped me too. I mm -hmm. had no shoes. Right. You know, five years. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get up his shoes. Mm. Men's shoes. I w there's plenty. Of the people would catch, you know, from the chimney. Right. I couldn't hear that. But right. he just could. I said, "There's yeah. no. I have no shoes. It's right. not my turn to go." <laughs> he said, "Just tell me which girl <laughs> has them today." Yeah. he's he very convincing. He he paid them German <laughs> money. Mm. Go down and buy uh, a pair of shoes for mm -hmm. yourself. <laughs> she has no shoes. She's going with me. Mm. Give me the cheer, you mm -hmm. know, to buy. It's my day. Right. He gave some German money, and uh, wow. that's what she took her. Right, right. Yeah, you have to choose now. So we have thank oh, God. Yeah, three children, three grandchildren, and four great grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice uh, boys. Yeah. How many people from your family? Do you know survived the war besides your brother? From my family? Yeah. No, they all. Just myself and two brothers. Yeah. Two, two brothers. Yeah. yeah. Two brothers and um, and um, now the other two brothers passed away in America. Yeah. The same as me. And she also the she was from seven children. Yeah. Just and they all The only one. But let me tell you, he took me here. We came to his aunt. You couldn't ask me to say it. That's the best day but there to to us. Yeah, I'm walking you down into You gotta tell you gotta tell him how we got here. Yeah. We walked in the street, my friend said here and he had the girl girls. Hankard, your mother's here. Is that your mother? I said, yeah, that's my mother. That's my aunt. That's his aunt. Let me tell you, they were so nice to us. Sweet. Yeah. That's all. I had the two. Yeah. Uh, Harriet, the older one. Yeah. Got married in Germany. I didn't want to even go into Germany and... Uh, she was born. 
I said, I don't want to sleep here. I don't want to, you know, with this. They helped me out when I had heard he had got uh, in Germany. Yeah. This one at the second. And the boys, <laughs> the boys, he's born here. But uh, let me tell you, the whole family, aunts, yeah, he had the, yeah, from the first war, an uncle and uh, a mother, his mother's mother, yeah. I gotta tell you uh, the, very quickly how the story, how we came to America and the life, just uh, for, a, for the beginning. Right after the war in Germany, they opened um, um, American organizations, the major organization, the or the um, uh, American Jewish Committee, uh, uh, the Labor Committee, whatever, opened up offices in Germany and announced if anybody uh, from the survivors has uh, relatives in America, or in the Western countries. And if you know the name and the address or how we can, that yeah. will get in touch for you with them. Yeah. Okay. I knew my mother had two sisters and a brother in America. That's my mother was also supposed to go, uh, the whole family, there were three sisters and a, and a brother. They came here at the turn of the century during the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So my um, grandparents were still alive. But in Poland, you know, they couldn't read, they couldn't write. Yeah. And there were elderly people, there was no social security. The two sisters, my mother's two sisters, came to America at that time and the brother. Nice. So I went and I reported that and I remembered when they were in America, they were sending to my mother for help for, the, for, for their parents. The parents were still alive. And so uh, we knew from that, the address, where, they, where the, every four times a year they were sending money for the holidays. And then the, my grandparents were living on that where the kids were sending in from America. And so I reported that uh, my aunt, I still remember after so many years, it's Anna Groen, lives on Cheney Street, 11 Cheney Street, Roxbury, Mass, USA. I reported that it didn't take long, and I got a letter from my aunt, that she's very happy that I'm alive, that I survived the forest. She's very sad that her sister and the family were murdered. So uh, uh, by then, my brothers, my two brothers, the younger one that was in Feldafingen, and my older brother was uh, liberated in Italy. We joined all together in Germany. So I said she's very happy and that she's going to work to help us and to bring us all to America. I was her favorite, as usual. <laughs> and so... Uh, because I was the best looking, right? <laughs> and so um, I used to write and she was sending packages. 
I was the best dressed man in the camp. I was wearing gargoyle socks, fancy ties, you know, the American printed ties, uh, suits. The people in the camp were trying to buy for me stuff that I was getting from my aunt in America. And it got to the point that uh, she already wrote that she's got papers for me and pretty soon she'll get the visa and I'll come to America. By then, I was already married and we had uh, the baby who was six months old. Harry, yes, the older one. So I, so I says I wouldn't go and leave them here. So I wrote back a letter and I said, Auntie, Aunt, I was very help, thankful for the help that you're giving me. I love you and I want to see you, but, uh, but uh, uh, I have a married, I have a wife and a child, and I cannot live in there. So I get another letter from my aunt, and she says, don't write to me anymore. I don't want to own you, I don't own you, I don't want to know you, I don't want you to know me, you're out of my life. What happened? It was right after the war. The American, there was always more women in America than at that time. And secondly, the men was in the military. See how lucky you were to get married to be born now in America. More men. <laughs> I know men are getting killed over you, beautiful girl. Sure. So, um, so I told them. I says I cannot go. And so she says, so she took my papers and gave it to my brother. My brother came here in 1948. And when my brother came, she didn't stop. Why did Izzy do that to me? I did put so hard for him. Why did he do that? He says, Auntie, when you'll see Izzy's wife and the baby, you'll change your mind. She says, no, never. I don't want to see him. I don't want to know him. He disappointed me. But after a while, she got softer. And she made papers for me too, and for the and, uh, and for the baby, and uh, and we came here in 1949, and Harriet was uh, nine, six months old. Yeah. We could have come earlier, but she had to give a uh, she had to get the. Uh, uh, they wouldn't let us in. They had to have the vaccination. Yeah. For the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And um, and we're here, and then I got in touch. Uh, I mean, got to know the people at the Jewish Community Relations Council, the JCRC. Yeah. Found out that there is such a jewel, and such an important individual in Boston that came from from <laughs> way, and uh, and we. We can't let anybody else should grab him. We gotta get him. And they did. Excellent. So thank you so much, Izzy, for sharing that with You're us. Welcome.
Um, meeting you was really impactful for me personally because despite my Jewish upbringing, I never had an opportunity to speak in person with someone who had survived the Holocaust until now, and I'm 29. <laughs> um, what would you like a younger generation like me and those even younger to take away after hearing from you? My uh, time when I was your age was different than it's now, but it's a very important time that... Um, after after years of peace, the anti-Semitism, it's, it's coming up again. Now, we did our fighting, and we kept it low, and we kept it down. And now, it's in, in, in your hands. Uh, you gotta, you got to not to ignore it, but to do something about it, and to work so that it doesn't get out of hand like it did before. One of the, uh, I guess, issues related to that, um, I, I've done some reading that other people have written about anti-Semitism and that anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. Jews are the victims of anti-Semitism, yet there is something that, that the Jewish community can do. What, what are some things that you think that, that we as Jews can do to confront this anti-Semitism that you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, well, uh, the, that's an old story that the Jews did it on, on themselves. Uh, it goes back, you know, to the times of, uh, of Jesus. In the camps, I have a book here written by, uh, by uh, the commandant of Auschwitz. And he writes that the uh, Jewish prisoners were killing one another, that the Jews killed, um, not the Germans. The Germans were just keeping order, seeing that the people get food and and comfort. But the rest, the, the Jews, did themselves. And so today, anti-Semitism is is coming, and it's it's coming very strong in a lot of countries where it's least expected, even in, here in America. Uh, what you should do about it, you do. We did. We were fighting back. Um, I'm not asking anybody to take a gun and go out in the street and, and shoot. Uh, but articles in the press, what you're doing with the uh, station, with your radio programs, things of that nature, politically, uh, that we have uh, Jewish people not participating in politics, here in America, several people are running for uh, president, uh, Jewish. Never happened before. Um, this is good. It gives us strength and uh, things of that nature. Don't run. Don't hide. Don't uh, turn the other cheek. Be on your feet. Stand up and say, I'm here. We did. We had the... Uh, uh, I don't know whether it's before your times. There was a the American Nazi Party right after World War II with the leadership of uh, Lincoln Ross, uh, Rockwell. He came to Boston with swastikas, with uh, Nazis, and they were going to speak on uh, Tremont Street where the film Exodus was showing. Well, we formed a demonstration, and he said uh, 
afterwards, after he was chased out of Boston by uh, the counter demonstration that we formed, and with the help in the police uh, involved, I saw what it is, and uh, and he said uh, uh, he has enough of Boston. He's not coming back to Boston. He went to other cities, but not to Boston, because he wasn't welcome. Yes, there were there were people here that welcomed him, but there wasn't. Even the Jewish, they are Jewish anti-Semites too. The leader of the Jewish Community Council was fighting us with the strength of the Jewish, of the membership of the Jewish, the organization, the major organization, including the Jewish war veterans. I could tell you the stack of material from those days, from that time, that how with what we did and how we fought back. Got too physical, yes. And he says he think think that he just come out alive. If it would have been another five minutes, he would have got the sh- ripped to, to pieces. You've been through a lot in your life and endured hardships most people can't even begin to imagine. What's something you've learned about resilience and strength? Resilience is strength. Um, well, resilience is, is great. People say, I accomplished, I did what I did, and I have a pretty good record. You probably know in Boston, I'm working for the Jewish community and, and um, Jewish-German relation and so forth. My very close friend, the Cardinal, Cardinal O'Malley, I call him Rabbi O'Malley, we stood up and we said, no, it's not going to happen. Nazis, anti-Semites came out. But uh, in strength, we came out 10, 50 times as strong as they did. We organized when they were going to come, said that they're going to pick at the uh, film Exodus down on Tremont Street. He came with uh, about 10 Nazis with the brown shirts, with the swastikas. We brought on 10,000 people. When you uh, go through what you've been through and then you sort of see the resurgence of anti-Semitism after what you've been through, it must be very difficult to see, yet I wonder... Um, how you stay hopeful about the future? Well, again, it's resilience and strength. If you turn the other cheek, if you run away, they're going to chase you. My mother was teaching us when somebody throws you a stone at you, you throw back bread or cake. My father said if somebody hits you on one side, you hit him three times, then he'll stay away, then he won't come back to you. You know, there are bullies everywhere. In school, I was a youngster in school, and we had a, a bully, a big guy, a Jewish, and the Jewish in Poland was where I was living in Plotsk. 
the um, it was equal but separate. So the Jewish kids went to Jewish schools and were fighting every day with the Polish kids. Every day were fights. Either when we go to school during recess because one was next to the other. There was a Jewish boy and he was a bully. Everybody was afraid of him. <coughs> I was I was popular. The girls, I had girlfriends and boyfriends, and you can see, and if you read my story, uh, what I've done, done here and how many friends and uh, who I deal with, you see I'm speaking at the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, this, uh, the 27th of January was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Yeah. I was invited, I was at the 70th anniversary. I was invited for the 75th too. I couldn't go, it's getting too much. I'm 95 years old, but it's getting a little too much. But we learned to fight back. I had this guy that was a bully. And I was popular. And um, one day he came to me, he says, um, let's go out and have and fight. You, you're too pop, you're more popular than I am. I took care on all the other kids. And you're the only one that stand up against me. So let's have a fight. Well, I, I said, um, if I say no, then he'll go all over the place and say, say, Izzy's afraid of me. He doesn't want to fight. He runs away. If I'll say yes, I know this guy can beat the hell out of me in no time. So I said, yes, I'm going to fight you. But on my conditions, I forget the one he'll say no. We fight in my neighborhood, in the backyard of my house where I live. We walk there in um, different conditions, whatever it is. He said, everything I said, he said yes. We started to walk, and I was walking on his right. And the closer we were getting to the house, the more scary I was getting because I know if I go into the yard with him, he'll make a, he'll make mesh out of me. So when we came out in the yard of my house, and I get away from there, so I just made a fist, see, and without any uh, hints or anything. All my mind, I said, that's one, and it's got to be the right one. And I, ooh, right in the face. And he was uh, lost now. I don't, and, and I ran to the house. That's where I was living. And then when he got two, I was already in the house because he was so disappointed how I, why didn't I go to fight them in the yards if I, if I wanted to fight? Why did I hit them and I ran away? So he came to the door of my house. I was hiding, but my brother, my older brother, Mac, came to the door. I said, what do you want? He says, Izzy was going to fight me, but he hit me. He says, uh, you want to fight? Come on, I'll go out with you. <laughs> So he says, no, I want to fight with Izzy. 
So he says, is he hit me? And he ran away. He didn't stay to fight to finish the fight. He became, after that, my best friend. He came to me the next day and he says, we're friends. Nobody's going to bother you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your protector. And that's what it was. You know why? I didn't run away. Those who ran away, they took next day, took away their lunch, uh, took away their lunch money or whatever. With me, I became best friend. The same thing that we did with the Rockville. Yes, we were there. The Jewish Community Council says, let him speak, and then he'll go away. He'll go another city. Yeah, I said, he'll go into another city. And he'll say the same thing what he's saying here. He said, he, he's going to finish the job that Hitler started. Didn't work. He didn't come here anymore. Izzy, thank you so much. Yeah, well, really incredible. And, you know, what we have the last two and a half hours is absolutely priceless information that we need to share with people. Thank you. Thank you. In 1941, while in a Nazi slave labor camp in Poland, Izzy got sick with typhoid fever. He was denied normal food rations and put in a quarantine barrack where the sick were going to be shot. Izzy escaped by jumping out a window. Anna, who was working in the kitchens, snuck food to his brothers to help him recover. To see photos and learn more, visit jewishboston.com izzy. Our video interview will be released this month and the show notes will be updated with the link. We want to end this episode with a call for help from you, our listeners. Izzy mentioned how he found Anna and his brother Aaron with the help of an American Army colonel or major stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. Just after liberation, this officer gave Izzy papers signed by none other than General Eisenhower himself. Without this man's help, Izzy said he might not have located them. We promised Izzy that we would help to try to reunite him with this man or his descendants. Our clues are that he was Jewish, high-ranking, colonel or major, and in a U.S. Army building in Stuttgart in April 1945. If you have any information, please email podcast at jewishboston.com. Thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of the Vibe of the Tribe. Be sure to follow us at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Thanks to our editor, Tyler, and our composer, Ryan. 